0: is the star
1: girl after show with sarah and sean your post-show breakdown of dc star girl with easter eggs exclusive behind the scenes info and cast and crew interviews this is our destiny i
0: finally know who i really am i'm star girl this is the star girl
1: after show
0: Good evening, Stargirl fans, or morning or afternoon, whenever you're listening to this. But hello! Welcome to another episode of Stargirl After Show, sponsored as always by Stargirl.tv and dctv.news, your best resources for news, media, and spoilers about Stargirl and other DC Comics properties. I'm Sean. And I'm Sarah. And later on, we will be joined by the Shade himself, Jonathan Cake. I'm very excited.
2: I am so excited to talk with him. I am loving the Shades character. I love him a little less after this episode, but we'll get there.
0: Yeah, he's still so good, though. Oh, yeah. So good at being bad. But without further ado, let's just jump into the episode, shall we? So
2: once again, we're getting a flashback for decades ago. I got to say, I was very happy with this scene because we're getting Starman actually being nice to Pat. I actually had a conversation with someone this past week and I was like, you know, do you think Starman by his family, he meant Pat? And um, I'm glad that that was right, that that's who was threatened. And so that's why Starman made the decision they did.
0: Yeah, I loved seeing him open up to Pat and just tell him uh, that, that he knows how much Pat's been there for him throughout his life.
2: Yeah, the whole story about the watch on his 16th birthday, the, a really sweet story. The fact that he still had the watch and put it down there.
0: So I have a couple things to note here. One, we have an Easter egg in this dialogue. He references Hop Harrigan, who is a DC Comics character, not affiliated with the JSA at all. He was a, a, one of those wartime guys. He was like a, one of those World War II comics from the 50s when superheroes fell out of fashion.
2: Oh, like some of the posters that were the movie posters from the first season?
0: Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, just a nod to that era of DC Comics history. Nice. Just a little throwaway. It's also worth noting that he got beat up in high school while already being a superhero. Oh. In season one, Pat tells Courtney that uh, his first outing as a superhero, he was 15 Sylvester was 15 and Pat was 20.
2: Oh, yeah. And for a 16th birthday, I didn't put that together.
0: So that's, you know, that's why he was able to, to go find Hop and get that watch back. Mm-hmm. I think he probably took the beating on purpose because he had to maintain that secret identity. Yeah. But, you know, then all by themselves, it's like, give me the watch back, dude.
2: And I think his gruff exterior and attitude makes a little more sense knowing his history with his parents and everything. Still don't like the way he treats Pat, but it, it does make a little bit more sense.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's like later on is when he's telling Pat, like, not you, definitely not you. Mm-hmm. So this isn't turning over a whole new leaf. It's just one moment in their history together where he's able to unburden himself Probably a little helped on by the loyal star beer Mm -hmm. and uh, by his grief over what he just did.
2: And I am glad that Pat didn't immediately grab a beer with him. He waited until they talked about, you know, chosen family. And he understood where Starman was coming from before he actually had that toast with him.
0: Yeah, it's a lot better than like, oh, golly, howdy. Starman wants to have a beer with me. Mm hmm. (laughs) Like he was hurt enough that he had to, he had to earn that beer with Pat.
2: And then we come to the current day, and Courtney is still yelling at Pat and Barbara. How could you not tell me about this? And I feel like she's upset like on multiple fronts because she's like, "Why didn't you tell me? Did you think that I was going to kill Cindy Berman? Like, what do you think of me that you think I would do that?" And then she's mad because maybe Yolanda wouldn't have you know left. And you know felt so
0: bad you and i have been talking about this all season before even knowing what the secret was you know we knew that there was a secret and we knew like they did such a great job of building this new open fully transparent relationship between the whole whitmore dugan clan and we knew this secret was going to have terrible repercussions and we see them play out here And it's throughout the episode, it's still with her. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like a lot of shows would have had it be the big reveal at the end, like, oh, big secret, and then have a scene where they talk it out and then it doesn't really get brought up too much ever again. Mm -hmm. That's what I love about this show is it gives the characters the breathing room to really explore their emotions and their feelings.
2: Yes. And you can tell still how betrayed she feels and just how hurt Courtney feels like throughout the episode. Not just mad. Like she's she's hurt.
0: Yeah, like on a real deep level.
2: And I love that Pat's like, no, this is Eclipso, you know, he's doing this. And she's like, no, it's not. This is on you. Yeah. And then the shade
0: literally drops right in. Yeah. Just, you know, a drop in.
2: I love his line. I admit it's not my best entrance. And he is humbly offering his assistance and he tells them, like, if you um, fuse the diamond back together, that'll trap him. And then I also love his little back and forth with Courtney and she's like, he doesn't have a host. He's free now. And he's like, oh, I was there. I remember.
0: Yeah. Um, and of course, it's the power of light that can reform the diamond. It was the power of light that broke the diamond. So it makes sense. Mm hmm. And I mean, what a literal interpretation of the battle between light and dark. Oh,
2: yeah. Pat is very much against, you know, listening to The Shade. He's like, this is a classic Shade, double talking here. Uh, Barbara actually stands up for him and is like, you know, he did save me from Icicle Eclipso.
0: He seems to think that The Shade manipulated Sylvester into killing Bruce Gordon. Mm-hmm. But there doesn't seem to be any sort of ulterior motive. Like the shade didn't want Bruce Gordon out of the way, for any reason. Right. It seems like it was genuinely the way to stop Eclipseo,
2: and it seems like it
0: worked. I think maybe Pat just, rather than blaming Sylvester's decision, mm-hmm. he's he wants to put it on the bad guy for yep. manipulating him into making that decision.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly what he was doing.
0: Unfortunately, the staff is still too weak. To put the diamond back together. And, you know, I say unfortunately, but really what I mean is super fortunately for us, because it means that we get the return of Jenny.
2: Yay. I was so excited.
0: Which, you know, I I love that they. Oh, you know what? We just talked about the shade dropping into the scene, literally. And Jonathan Cake has just dropped into our chat. Welcome, Mr. Cake, to the show.
1: Thanks, Sean. I'm very happy to be doing it.
0: We're very happy not only for you to be playing the Shade, but for the Shade to be here at all because he really is one of my favorites. Um, and I'm curious uh, how the Shade came about for you.
1: Can I just ask, Sean? Were you a, were you a comic book fan too? Have you have you um, did you know the Shade from yes. of, old, of old? Yes. Curious? Well, you know, I've I got to say, it really means an enormous amount to me when people, and I've had a lot of people who've been very, very kind about my performance as The Shade. When people who know the comics say it's working, you know, that really means a lot. Not because I poured myself into, um, researching all that comic stuff, I, I, I could talk about that a little bit more because I think Jeff and actually James didn't really want me to. They wanted it to be my own sort of take on it. But, you know, when anything pre-exists, when, when any there's a sort of favorite character, a much-loved character from a novel or a stage play or exists in another form before and gets transplanted to and made flesh in an actor on screen, you know, it's... Tough, and comes with a ton of expectations, of course. And so whenever anybody says it feels like it's good and close to what they'd imagined, it feels enormously, yeah, really pleasing for me.
0: Well, as I'm sure you know, The Shade was around for 50 years in the comics before right. he became the Shade that we know that you're portraying from the James Robinson Starman comic. Right. That's when he became this guy who whose interests may align occasionally with people of a notorious sort. Yes. And that version is the the version that I super, super love and was Uh. so looking forward to seeing brought to screen. And you you really do to just to a perfect T. I love it.
1: Thanks, man. I'm very, really always so happy, as I say, to hear people uh, say that, if they know the, the previous source as well. You know, And, of course, if they don't as well.
0: So was this a standard uh, audition? You heard about the role, went out for it sort of thing? Yeah, it
1: was, it was exactly that. It, it was a standard audition tape. Oh, except it wasn't standard in one respect. I read the material and thought, oh, you know what? This is great. I I was not a comic book aficionado. It, it was a part of my childhood, part of my adult life that it's just unknown to me. Um, didn't impinge on my consciousness, but I could tell the minute I read it that I understood where it was coming from. Interestingly, I did a couple of scenes that haven't appeared in the show, They were so good. I really miss them. I keep wondering if James or Jeff are going to throw them in somehow, somewhere. Um, But what happened was I read it and thought, aha, now this is some good stuff. I feel like I could do something with this. Um, I've always been a huge fan of Dickens. Um, Funnily enough, I was reading David Copperfield with my family uh, throughout Lockdown. So we had our heads, were, both, we're all teeming with kind of Dickensian characters. And the scene that I guess it was probably James who, who gave it to me, uh, has him talking about his close and intimate friendship with Charles Dickens. Um, so that felt oddly, you know, serendipitous. And then I, was, I thought, so, okay, I'll do, do this tape with my wife, who's an actor. Who's really good. She just won an Emmy, by the way.
0: Oh, well, congratulations. (laughs) that's great.
1: Thanks. Just saying. I'm so proud of her that I can't resist telling everybody. Um, uh, She's really good. But weirdly, when I was doing this tape with her, even though I thought this material was so juicy, I just wasn't. Feeling it, Uh, it, 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 I think we probably had time constraints like we always do. You know, you've got two youngish kids and we're running around trying to live our lives. And I just felt like I didn't really nail it and sort of felt bad and self-conscious about that because it felt like I really wanted to. And after she had to go, Julianne, my wife, had to leave. I thought, well, there is somebody else in the house who could help me. And that was my 12-year-old daughter, Phoebe. And she's not uh, an experienced actor. Uh, but quite keen, and weirdly, I had to do these two incredibly sinister scenes <laughs> with this twelve-year-old girl, and she was fantastic. And I don't, I still don't really know why, but it sort of seemed to unlock something that wasn't quite there with the professional, with the celebrated professional sitting opposite me who had to leave and do the shopping. Anyway, um, that was how that was the audition uh, tape. And I think I was on the phone to Jeff Johns a few days later to talk about this extraordinary guy, The Shade.
2: So did you know that the role you were reading for was The Shade or did they have a dummy name for it?
1: He was called Richard Swift, but um, uh, I think they did tell me he was The Shade. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. Most people have a complete dummy name in the sides they audition with. Almost everyone we've spoken to. Gosh, interesting. Except for Breck. Um,
1: I could be misremembering, as I like to do a lot, particularly at this stage of my life. So it could it could have been some red herring name. I'm pretty sure he was Richard Swift, because I remember thinking, Dickie Swift, that's a great...
0: He was established at the end of season one, so that could be why. Um, it wasn't yeah. a surprise yeah. that he was coming.
1: Got it. You're up, right.
0: Yes, haha. I've solved the mystery.
1: Nicely done, Sean.
0: So um, you didn't do much in the way of reading comics because they wanted you to have your own take?
1: Well, I did. I, I was all prepared to launch myself on a deep dive. And although it was never explicitly said, I, I did get the... Actually, it was pretty explicitly said. Jeff said, you don't need to do that research. You have a real... You know, he thought I had an innate feeling for that character. And actually, I think it was. it, it was... I, I did do some of course because how could you not but I think it was really really smart of him and James to not inundate me with all that source material because you know if you're if you're if an actor is weighed down by the weight of the weight of expectation of trying to fulfill this other thing that they've seen and they know is so important to so many people it, it can be really inhibiting you know an actor's job is to Try to have an original take on something. To follow your instincts. To to be free, really. And so I really feel like that was a great gift to me that these these two comic book gurus didn't say go read a ton of comic books. They were like, you know, you'll get what you need to get from these scripts. And ask us anything. And I did. I picked their brains a lot about him. But also, it's interesting. You know, sometimes with a character as enigmatic and as you know, genuinely mysterious as The Shade. There have been times filming the season when I haven't wanted to know everything. You know, there's ways, there's times in which I think we can be kind of mysteries to ourselves sometimes, you know, in life, you don't really understand sometimes why you do certain things, why you think certain things. And I think that's actually really helpful to an actor sometimes is to not to absolutely know why, you know, with a reason you're doing something. It's only used sparingly. For example, I'll give you an example. At the beginning of the season, I didn't understand why Barbara Whitmore was significant to The Shade. And I sensed there was something extremely important about that relationship. But I didn't ask explicitly until I needed to know explicitly what it was. Uh, it, it, it was interesting to me for it to be a kind of piece of music in his head that is nagging at him, but he can't quite place, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, absolutely. I I love the forced ignorance method of acting. I've never heard of that one before.
1: <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, sometimes things are mysterious, you know, and I, and, I, and I really believe that about him. I believe that there's a... He's, he's, of course, super intelligent and has wonderful, wonderful, rich interior life. I think a lot of which has been sort of hinted at or fleshed out in this season. But I do think at the end of the corridor of his soul, there's kind of a locked door, you know. And I think that's fascinating. I and mean, it's always fascinating in human beings, wherever you find them. You might get a peek through the locked door. It might be ajar occasionally, but there's genuine mystery there. So sometimes it's best to not ask all the questions and get all the answers, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I imagine being 150 years old, you know, you, you tend to forget chunks of your life, not in an Alzheimer's way, but you know, uh, you know, my high school years are there's, there's islands of memories, but (laughs) huge swaths of it are gone. I'm sure
1: yeah I don't know if that's true of him uh, it might be uh, but I have a feeling actually he's pretty haunted by the past and I think he's one of those people who wishes he could forget more I think he's someone who Jeff said this to me very early on you know the thing about being immortal and having lived as long as he has is that everyone's significant to him has died everyone is gone you know his 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 loved ones are have long predeceased him and his friends, and anybody who had bonds with. There is an immense loneliness there, I think, which is really interesting, coupled with this, this thing that we also talked about this last season, which was, you know, when you've lived that long, you must crave the unexpected, the original, the unusual, so much more than somebody who, you know, to whom newness is is a dime a dozen, you know, when you've got into that kind of Groundhog Day thing, to, to vary the rituals, to see a new facet of human nature, to have a new experience is so rare that I think he lives, I think he's addicted to unpredictability.
0: That makes so much sense. You've seen it all. 150 sure. years on earth. Sure. Seeing something new has got to be great.
1: You've also seen some of the worst that, you know, human history has to offer. I mean, I know we we think that things are gradually improving less there are less, you know, wars, and obviously we've got uh, some profound issues to deal with at the moment. But, you know, the 19th and 20th century were pretty rough on human experience if you've lived that, through that. So I think he has all that accumulation of feeling and pain and memory. And I think, as I said, I think he could wish that he could forget more than he does
0: now I want to talk about your children for a second because you said your daughter's 12 yes and you have another presumably around the same age somewhere he's a son who's 14 yeah a 14 year old son so dad is now on a superhero TV show is this exciting to them
1: yes well we didn't watch the show before it got cast and then suddenly we were like oh we going to watch and it was our new favorite show for sure so we we devoured season one season two is proving harder not just because i don't love watching myself which i don't um because you know we're all so into the show that we would for sure be watching we are we have watched it's just quite scary yeah you know the, the horror movie aspect of what they're doing this this year is really great, and they're not doing it by halves. But my kids, <laughs> they won't mind me saying this, are milk toasts from way back. So you know, they're like, I think I might just go and watch some soccer highlights. You know, <laughs> we've been um, <laughs> we've been trying it on. And occasionally I mean, to go. Can we just have a palate cleanse or something? Because of course we can only watch it in the evening, and they don't want to get to bed with eclipses in their heads. But I get it. You know what I mean? This is this is uh, this shows that the, that it's really what they're going for is really really working.
0: If but, I may, my wife has that same exact reaction.
1: Yeah, well, it's powerful stuff. You know, there's some wonderfully powerful things in this in this season. Really grown-up subjects that they're tackling and not flinching away from in a ways that I find so admirable, you know. You could totally half ass some of these uh, some of these themes and I don't think they're doing that, which I really respect the show for, really respect Jeff for.
0: And they also don't dumb it down at all. Right. You know, they they let the characters have like really real emotions and don't just take yeah. emotional shortcuts for the yeah. sake of brevity or getting to the next part of the story
1: so so true and proper moral complexity and I was just struck by how the burdens of being a decent person and trying to do good in the world and how as a theme you know from the first season carrying over into the second you know and how uh, how much of a burden that is when these are human beings people to try obviously one of the huge themes of this of this year is what happens to the JSA happened to the previous iteration of the JSA and, and how to, how to deal with that with a clear conscience, you know, so interesting.
2: So when you are filming, obviously you aren't actually generating this black smoke and shadows and everything. What is it like working with that kind of CG?
1: Sarah, that's why I got cast because they <laughs> have a special skill. Um, Well, the CG people on the show are great, 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 great. I've never once—it's actually my—is that right? My first experience of like extensive CG. Can that possibly be true? I think it might be. I think it might be. Um, I've been delighted at how amazingly unobtrusive it is. How they're much, much more concerned with you know keeping the truth of the scene and, and what's working between the actors than sort of teeing you up artificially for a great effect. Um, and the CG people are fantastic and the stunt people are fantastic. It, you know, one of the fun things about it is it, you, when you're doing it, you think, how is this going to work? And you're as curious, you know, of course, as the viewer about what that actually looks like. So when I first saw his shadow powers, I was like, whoa, that's what it is, so cool, it's great. I mean, they described it and they did sort of, you know, temp effects and stuff like that, but only when you see it do you feel like, ah, I see, that's great. So, you know, there's, again, the actor has to be, an actor has to be Careful about, about sort of not, you know, there are only certain things you can control. So if you're sort of getting into, okay, so exactly how does this waft out of, you know, where is this being generated? You know, you can't, it, it, it doesn't, it's kind of self defeating really to be too specific about that. I got the general idea, I understand the philosophical concept behind it. And then it's like other people who have that skill will make it happen.
0: Also, you know, Shade doesn't do the whole like, doing stuff with his hands for his shadows to, he just has a level of mastery that he can just sit there and let his shadows do what they're doing.
1: Yes. I love that. I love that. They were very small gestures. That was something that we talked about and I wanted, I I didn't feel he was a sort of theatrical person in that way or needed to be. Again, it comes with the age I think and sort of, you know, his economy of movement and, a sort of sublime, you know, confident relaxation in his powers. And I loved, I like that idea. You know, against against Eclipso, he has to bring his game a little bit more in a front foot kind of way. And so he has to be a little bit more kinetic, a little bit more energized. But um yeah, I was I was I would, I very much enjoyed those scenes where he gets to just sort of, you know, do it be like a sort of skilled orchestral conductor. Yeah,
0: you know. You know, We talked about it on the podcast when the JSA first uh, accosts him in uh, the Zarek house and he takes everybody out so easily mm. and he almost looks bored. It's not an issue at all except when he's dealing with the staff and then I can see just a little bit of concentration in your face but still no theatrics.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was something we discussed, and I really did want that to be minimal, ec- economically minimal. I think it just gives you a great sense of you know what is held in reserve with him. Again, it's that all about that mystery and about what's untapped and what's he really doing, and is this the extent of what he can do, or is there more? And um, I think if you can try to get max value with minimal effort then you've always got something up your sleeve you know for later on absolutely
0: sarah did you have anything before we go through the shades scenes in this episode
2: uh i guess just like a general actor question yeah i've seen that you've done theater and then you've done film and television is there like an ideal role that you have that um you hope to play do you
1: know what, Sarah? if i could get paid properly to do theatre for the rest of my life I have to tell you that's kind of what I do I am not to carry on playing Shade the Shade for the rest of my life this is an amazing part but no seriously I I, here's why theatre is for me kind of the most important art form that I do medium I suppose is what it is not an art form it is an art form but um, it's acting Um, and it's because you do this stuff in a rehearsal room where you're standing up all day, if you're working on a, g- a good play, and I've worked on a lot of classic plays, you're solving these unbelievably difficult, high-class problems all day, every day. There's a, there's a real issue for actors about <laughs> it being a job for a grown-up. You know, there, <laughs> is, there is something that happens, particularly when you're filming and you're sort of waiting all day in a, overheated trailer, people bringing you, you know, snacks. Someone's dressing you, someone's putting on your makeup. You know, you're waiting all day to say, pass the quiche or something. You can go home at night feeling like, I sort of felt like I was six years old all day today. It didn't really feel like a a job for a grown person. But I never feel that in theater. I always feel like I'm used up. It's hard. Uh, I find it extremely hard to do. Particularly, I've done a lot of Shakespeare plays and um, the, 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 the scope and, and reach of those plays are so enormous that they demand that you grow in doing them. You have to get bigger uh, doing them. You have to get a bigger brain, bigger heart, um, all sorts of things. You have to really... Otherwise, you'll get kind of humiliated. By the part, by the play, because it's so huge and difficult. So that sense of you know that feels like whoa, that's not say, waiting to say past the quiche anymore. You know what I mean? That feels like no one's putting on my shoes for me. I'm um, dabbing makeup on my nose. I'm 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 working here, and then of course you know it's the liveness of it. It feels like I I come from a sports background, and I love the sense of it being like a sports event. You know, you you start and you go in order and you finish and no one can walk on stage and say sorry there was a boom in shot there we just have to go again you know it's live and you have this kind of burning man experience of it not being ever reproduced it's you know there for those people who are present that night and will not exist after they've all left the theater you come back and try and do it again differently the next night so that's a long-winded explanation of why i find theater so fulfilling you know which as I said, isn't to say that um, movies and and TV can't be, uh, they they absolutely can be wonderfully, wonderfully fulfilling. I have to say, I look forward to going to work on this show all the time. I haven't always been able to say that about uh, all the TV work I've done. Of course, I'm sure nobody can. But this show, the people are so delightful and easy and sort of egoless, and the part is just so fun, you know so um, this is a I mean you know I don't know how this could possibly work but it's a part that I'd love to play for as long as I can
2: I think it's really neat that pretty much everyone we talk to that's involved in the show they have the same opinion that they they love everyone that works on the show and it's it's like a big family and everyone gets along and I think that's really great
1: it's really great and not always common you know and it's a happy mm-hmm. group and a fulfilled group and yeah, it's it's a it's a very lovely atmosphere. It's great.
0: Now going into the episode, Sarah and I just talked about the shades drop in. You're not my <laughs> best entrance, right? Not too much to discuss there. He he dropped in and gave a little explanation. Um, and you're kind of hurt throughout most of this episode.
1: Yeah, I think he's still very wounded from the eclipso fight.
0: Yeah, only sort of now just able to materialize. Uh, Into something more corporeal than some smoky fog. That said, there's this excellent scene where, as you discussed, we get into Shade's connection with Barbara. Why she's special to him. Because she reminds him of his sister, Emily. And you got this whole just great monologue thing going on. You don't get a lot of monologues on this show. But you got to just live in that moment.
1: Yeah, it was so fascinating, too. In his delirium, he has this sort of visitation of his late sister, as you say, Emily. And that, we find out, is what has been making him obsessed with Barbara. It's something that he can't quite place, and then he does understand it. And only when he's really broken down and suffering and his powers are ebbing ebbing away, and this sort of immortal... Uh, man seems like he might actually be very mortal after all does do we find out you know that 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 she was this extraordinary moral guide to him and maybe the closest person to him in his life and i think it's a it's an enormously useful thing for an actor to understand that he he carries this sense of having been a disappointment to her Uh, around with him for all these hundreds of years that he's been on the earth, you know. He has that great line, I had unspeakable power, and while you were by my side, I tried not to abuse it. And one of the things I love about that is it really made me think about people in our world, modern world, 21st century world, who have unspeakable power, and you know, similarly morally ambiguous at best. I mean, you know, some of them are pretty morally unambiguous, the people who have, you know, enormous amounts of power. But there are some who I sense would like to try to do the right thing. But of course, you know, there's an incredible burden that comes with being given those powers, however he came, you know, the circumstances, whatever they circumstances that they were sort of thrust upon him so I love that push and pull in him that that speech brings out about the way he's tried to live his life with the burden really of these powers that keep pulling him back to using them for the wrong reasons Um, with that little voice of Emily as his kind of conscience I find that very moving, you know, very, very moving. Also because the sibling relationship, you know, I think of my kids and um, the the relationship between a brother and a sister and how deeply innocent and, and meaningful it is or can be. So even though this guy is, you know, a supervillain, he still misses his sister.
0: And, you know, for someone who was uh, um, enough of a member of the ISA to have, gotten painted into their portrait presumably posing with them for it though how they got Grundy to stand still I still don't know (laughs) but for he's he doesn't make a secret of his level of disdain for them either
1: no his his motivations and really what he's up to are extremely complex it's one of the things that makes him so fun to play he's so morally ambiguous and partly I often think you know One of the reasons why he's hard to get a hold on or or, or just when you think you understand his motives or what he's trying to achieve, he wrong foots you. And one of the reasons why I think that is great and so interesting is because of this, you know, lightning quick intelligence. I think he's not, he has no problem with deceiving people, being dishonest, to maybe try to do something honest, more honest, further down the line, or vice versa, you know. So yeah, I think there's another thing that makes it kind of a burden for him, you know, is, is, is the fact that he's sort of four or five steps ahead of other people most of the time. That's not necessarily an easy way to live, or an uncomplicated way to live. You know, most of us, if if most of us are sort of dumb enough to just live moment to moment and feel fine with that. But if you are so intelligent that you can see four or five moves beyond other people, you are, you're given insights that are probably not terribly reassuring, relaxing, you know easy on the brain. And so I, I love that aspect of him that it's, that, you know, it's a bit like Sherlock Holmes, you know, intelligence isn't always uh, can sometimes be a curse.
0: Absolutely. In our little origin in this episode, they sort of tie shade to Eclipso. Yeah. With their origin there's people trying to capture the power of Eclipso. Yes. And somehow the, because of the, what was it? A uh, counterfeit diamond.
3: Yeah,
0: uh, which was of the Shade's own doing, of Swift's own doing. Yes. the It wasn't able to control the Shadowland powers or contain them, and so they ended up in him. But moving on, here at the end, he has tricked them into reforming this diamond, knowing that it's going to put Courtney in mortal danger, doing so. But that's the price for his own restoration. And I'm really struck by the sincerity in his voice when he apologizes to Barbara for having deceived her.
1: Yeah, well I feel like he's also apologizing to Emily, right? He's sort of conflated the two of them in his in his mind and his imagination, but I think they stand for something similar, which is a kind of, you know, moral integrity, decency. But, you know, there's also this interesting thing about the shade that you Again, just when we think we've got him pegged, uh, we might be wrong-footed. He's, he's got tricks up his sleeve that we don't anticipate. And that's one of the things why I, uh, that's why I love you know, playing him, because you have to commit utterly to these moments. But I think it's important to remember that he's uh, playing this game of chess He's Machiavelli. Many, many moves ahead, yeah.
2: And I think this works really well in this episode where Pat and Courtney are so at odds with each other because yeah. he you know, kept the truth from her. And so she may have been more willing to listen to Pat about the shade and his double talk in that first scene had he not just lied to her. Yeah. I know Pat really kind of brought down this whole... Not to say that the shade would have still been able to to work this but um.
1: you're absolutely right and I think that theme of trust is such a good one in this in this episode you know Barbara I think says I I don't know whether Courtney and Mike will ever be able to trust us again and it's Mm -hmm. good how this season works on people's beliefs you know who you believe in other people and it was also very fun for me as an actor having that moment of something darker and more malevolent because you know, there's, there's, there's definitely been sort of hints of the Shade's softer side this season. And it's, it was kind of fun to, you know, unmask that, that villain, that double-crossing villain again and realize that, you know, that's that's how a lot of high-class, uh, duplicitous people work. They work on being so you know, deeply convincing them. They'll convince you that they've reformed a thousand times. And then you'll still keep believing them even while they're showing you that they haven't. So uh, I I, I really enjoyed getting up off the couch, putting that wonderful overcoat back on and disappearing into my inky clouds.
0: Now, before we let you go, there was something that just occurred to me that uh, I'm curious about. So in season one, we had, a whole bunch of bad guys. Um, We had uh, Brainwave and Icicle and off-camera, those two were roommates. But uh, this season, you don't have a lot of uh, people within your age range to act Uh. with. So what's it like for you on set with a bunch of people (laughs) in their 20s for the most part?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Well... They're extremely they're extremely nice, <laughs> whether they they secretly think of me as like the sort of natural history museum. You know, sort of interesting, but definitely a relic. Uh, no, they've all been really, really sweet and accepting. I really enjoy Luke. I really enjoy Amy, who are close, of course, to my age range and easy to you know, we have similar references just because of families and stuff like that. But uh, the younger members of the cast, are delightful, just very easy to be with. Um, I certainly don't feel as left out as Shade does. I think Shade does carry this, that um, that solitude, that sense of solitude around with him. And I think in a very interesting way, I, I love that about him. I think it's a fascinating quality. You wonder whether he really would like to be closer, more intimate with people, have more human bonds, but his whole everything about him sort of makes it hard. Um, No, it's, it's a very, it's a very integrated, easy, happy group on set. And I don't feel like I'm the old person that no one talks to.
0: I mean, you don't, you don't have to tell me how absolutely welcoming and wonderful that whole cast is.
2: And I'm glad to hear that because you portray it so well of being so annoyed with all these teenagers on the show um, it just I, I love that like uh, when you showed up when Eclipso comes out like your appearance there that you're just bored and sick of these little kids <laughs> messing everything up it was uh, it was wonderful
1: thanks I'm, I'm sad to say that you know sort of <laughs> aloof contempt is a bit of a is a bit of an English kind of birthright <laughs> It's bred in us, you know, as kids, how to do that sort of, oh, God, you're so vulgar and loud. Uh, it's, it's pretty easy to access, but I really, I definitely don't feel that in real life.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan Cake. What a pleasure. Greatest.
2: Yes, thank you so much.
0: We're excited to see what's next for The Shade and the rest of the gang. And we're going to let you go before we. Go on to a break and talk about the remainder of the episode, the the darker parts, ironically without the shade.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Joel. Thanks, Sarah. That was really fun. Girl, after show. Hey, you. You look like you're in need of a vacation. A Friday Island
0: vacation where you get to hear about the things you enjoy.
1: Here, we talk about everyone's favorite movies, TV shows, video games, and more. We keep things pretty laid back here, but we also do our research. We've got trivia, questions about plot holes, some hilariously bad reviews, and more.
2: New episodes go up every Friday, obviously.
1: So come on and join Neil and I over on Friday Island Podcast, available wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you there. Hey,
0: guys, it
1: That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No by law, 80 plus terms, conditions apply. See website for details. All right, so continuing from where we left off before the shade dropped in. Uh, speaking of, I didn't
2: mention this earlier. The Whitmore Dugan kitchen is taking a beating this season.
0: He fell right onto the already damaged island. Mm-hmm. It's uh, really not not great. What's going on there? No, no, it's not.
2: But then we go over, and I love the scene with Beth and her parents and Beth is still wearing the goggles which she should be because as we learned the last episode it helps her like see past eclipsos visions and all that
0: 100% if I'm Beth I am not taking those goggles off No never it's like it helps me see what's real like what do you like they're concerned about her when her mm-hmm. mom is like maybe I should take you to the hospital she meant the psych ward for sure Absolutely
2: and they tell her like try to explain she's like no You wouldn't talk to me about the divorce. I'm not ready to talk about this.
0: Beth in this scene is the Beth I've been waiting for all along.
2: Yeah, I am glad that she's coming into her own like this.
0: She's finally, finally really moved past needing the acceptance of her parents. She's like, y'all figure out your stuff. You told me to get friends. That's what I did. Now they need me. You deal with this. See on the flippity flop.
2: Yeah. And especially because she could probably easily explain the goggles as like a science experiment or something for school because they know how into school she is. And she chooses not to.
0: She chooses to keep them in the dark. She already made up the story about the swim team. Mm -hmm. And it could just be like, I really need to get used to this on my face so that it's not distracting when I'm swimming. If she wanted to continue that story. But... Um, she was like look it's this thing it's too much to explain to you but I'm not going to lie to you in this moment mm-hmm. but I'm also not going to come fully clean yeah
2: and uh, she leaves because Courtney called and needed her um, which I also like that Courtney can call directly to the goggles I don't know if we've had that
0: before no but I imagine that they're just like paired with her phone that makes sense something like that all right, I like that. Or she can have her phone forward the calls to the goggles because the goggles are connected to the internet because mm-hmm. they've got all the JSA database, yeah, and all of that. So, um, I mean, it. I love it. It's like yeah on on the Flash. Everybody talks to each other wherever they are. They just yell at the air, mm-hmm. and we just all have to assume. That they have earpieces that they've never (laughs) mentioned. Yeah. (laughs) It's just assumed everybody has earpieces.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll buy it. (laughs) All right. Then we got Pat and Barbara, where Pat's, you know, revealing Jenny's ring can help us, and I've got a lead on where she is. And then we get the whole talk from Barbara about I don't know if Mike and Courtney will ever trust us again.
0: Yeah, that was that was uh I, I don't know. There's something I really loved about that about her like worrying that their teenagers have lost faith in them as parents. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that not enough parents are concerned about.
2: Yeah. Well, at least that they don't voice. Yeah. So I love this next scene where Courtney is giving the staff a pep talk, you know, and like you tried your best.
0: It's okay. It was very cute. Very sweet. Courtney talking to the staff is something I'm never going to not love.
2: Mm hmm. I really like how Mike is jumping in here and he's like, you know, the, the diamond is dangerous. Even when it's shattered, like it turned into leeches. You need to be
0: careful. I thought that was really sweet brotherly advice. I also love Mike's complete misconception of what went down. Mm-hmm. Like he thought the diamond turned into leeches. Uh huh. <laughs> that's, that's not what happened, Mike. It's not no. what happened.
2: And then we find out that Pat won't tell her where Jenny is because he knows that she'll just go without him. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's probably fair. And then the look on Mike's face, you know, he's like, okay, well, you're just going to leave us here with the shade. She's like, no, not exactly. And Beth shows up like, hi, I'm here to protect you.
0: (laughs) Beth is his protection. The look on Mike's face is everything.
2: Yes. I love it.
0: So, so good. He doesn't even care like how it might make Beth feel. And to her credit, Beth doesn't care. She's just (laughs) thrilled. Yeah. (laughs) Which, can I say, it's good to see Beth thrilled like that because she's kind of been going through some stuff. And I'm just real happy about seeing like happy bubbly Beth again. Yes, I completely agree. Even if it's just for a moment, like welcome back, Beth. We missed you.
2: And then we have Pat and Courtney driving in silence. And then I love how she turns on the radio and it's, you know, I'm sorry. So sorry.
0: Yeah. Patsy
2: Cline. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, kind of a, a moment that's been used in other things, but I think it just really paid off right in that moment. I thought it worked well and kind of broke the tension a little bit for the
0: audience. And it cues Pat. This is a really great conversation between them where it starts with Pat saying that he thought she was better off not knowing which is always a BS excuse used in superhero stuff, but he boils it down really to like, I didn't want you to think differently of the JSA or of me. He didn't want his, uh, semi-complicitness in that act to shade how Courtney saw him, especially in light of the relationship they've just built. That's a shade. I like that. Okay. Pun not intended. <laughs> But yeah, he like reveals,
2: you know, she doesn't know the full story. You know, she doesn't know that there was a vote and they actually voted
0: to go kill this guy and that Pat voted against it. But that didn't matter to continue this car scene for a minute. I know that it gets interrupted with other scenes, but may as well just continue on this conversation. Mm -hmm. She tries to find out where they're going and he's like, I'll tell you when we get there. And she uh, just is straight up like, don't shut me out, dude. You're going to make this worse.
2: That was one of the moments where it was a lot like that That she's hurt, that she doesn't want to not have this relationship with him. She wants things to be back the way they were. She wants him to stop screwing it up.
0: Yeah. And how uh, rare and valuable is having a relationship with someone Who can just straightforward tell you, like, what you're doing right now is hurting this relationship and you Mm -hmm. need to not do it. Yeah. I mean, that's typically things are getting hurt without you knowing they're getting hurt and rifts are being made. And I love that Courtney is just able to verbalize that.
2: I feel like he was kind of doing it as maybe like a power play that he has the information and she doesn't so he's in control of the situation because
0: there's nothing she can do she's powerless with it and she's the one he's trying to keep her from hopping on the staff and flying away Mm -hmm. because it's in the back seat you can see it yeah and she tells him
2: "Like we're in this together stop doing that you're being ridiculous
0: so Rick has one scene in this episode
2: and I really liked it I thought it was great to show the friendship of Grundy throwing the apples in there. But it made me think.
0: I know what you're going to (laughs) say.
2: If someone like Grundy can sneak up and throw something through the window, it seems very easy to break out of the Blue
0: Valley Police Department. Well, I didn't know what you were going to say. I was wrong. Oh, okay. I, I was wondering more along the lines of like, Grundy's a little smarter than we give him credit for. If he could figure out which window Rick was in or that he was in that building in the first place, unless it's a bloodhound thing, maybe he could smell them.
2: Oh, I bet that probably is it. Or he threw apples in every single person. So, <laughs>
0: um, but, uh, to your point, I'm sure that the blue Valley police department typically has like, the town drunk in a cell, mm-hmm. which I guess would be Rick's uncle. Rick's uncle sleeps it off sometimes. Wakes up in the morning. They let him out. They probably have a toothbrush for him. It's it's Mayberry with supervillains.
2: Yeah, it reminded me of like the old west kind of uh, little jail cells.
0: Yeah, but
2: but yeah, but Blue Valley probably usually doesn't need that um, much security. But I did like that, that scene that shows the friendship there.
0: So I want to interrupt this episode real quick, just in the middle of nowhere, because I just remembered this. Okay. We got an email. The, the subject line was Stargirl saved my daughter. Oh. So Duo writes us, my daughter Nevaeh is an amazingly brave 13 year old girl. About a year ago, we were in a car accident, and while I was unconscious, she pulled her younger sister and younger brother to safety before I woke up. In doing so, she got burned pretty bad, and she spent the time recovering, watching Stargirl. There is a sentence in one of the episodes, quote, A hero can come from anywhere. Me being retired from the Army and now working as an EMT, I believe that, and she does too. She now wants a career where she can help people. So, um, I, I then... Had a conversation with Duo, and uh, he went on to explain that his daughter's hands were burned and she couldn't really do anything while she was in the hospital. She couldn't really hang out with friends. And it was Stargirl that sort of helped her through that.
2: I'm going to cry.
0: They don't, they, their family doesn't watch a lot of TV, but Stargirl really hooked them in. Uh, he just wanted to let us know that. Stargirl did that for his family and really helped with his daughter's recovery.
2: Oh, that's so great. And
0: uh, I just wanted to say that Nevea did an amazing thing.
2: Absolutely. That's incredible.
0: You know, it wasn't like Stargirl inspired her to do something heroic. She did that on her own. Mm -hmm. I think she found Stargirl so compelling because... She saw someone she had something in common with. I think you're right. Oh, that's so wonderful. Now, uh, her dad also went above and beyond to make her a special Stargirl related Christmas present. So um, she can look forward to that. And I've seen pictures of it and I think she'll really love it. Oh, that's awesome.
2: I'm excited to hear what it
0: is. So, wanted to interrupt to say that. Also, while we're already interrupted, I think it's time for a giveaway. All right, what do you think at this time? So, I have made Polaroids of the Christmas Polaroid. Actual Polaroids, mind you. Oh, great. Of the Whitmore, Dugan, JSA Christmas Polaroid from episode 113. So, I have, let's say, 15... What do we want to have them do? I think Twitter worked out really well. I think so, too. What can they tweet at us?
2: Like, hashtag Stargirl chosen family.
0: We'll do that. I will say, if you received a pink pen, please give other people a chance to win something. We mm-hmm. know you're the biggest fans because you jumped right on that because you were listening to the episode right away. But please give someone else a chance to win. So... Tag us at Stargirl Pod and say hashtag Stargirl Chosen Family to get your own chosen family Polaroid. Oh, we should start having things as bonuses if people provide us a proof of purchase of one of our awesome shirts from our T Public store at merch.stargirlaftershow.com.
2: Yeah, there are some awesome designs up there. So definitely go check it out. Sean did an amazing job designing all these. Oh,
0: thanks. It's almost like it's what I do for a living or something. (laughs) So back into the episode. Now that you guys are done um, being sapped at and cajoled into buying things.
2: All right. Then we're going to uh, jump back into uh, Courtney's house. Uh, Beth is kind of peering in at the shade and then she goes to talk talk to Barbara. Just questioning everything. The shades here. Eclipsos free. The JSA killed a guy. She asks, you know, did Dr. Midnight help do it? And immediately her goggles light up and Dr. McNighter says, I made a vow to never take a life.
0: So this opens a lot for me. A, I love that Beth immediately went there because though she befriended an AI version of him, she still considers this a friendship. Mm -hmm. You know, like the AI version of him. Is him, basically. Yes. Uh, So she doesn't want to think badly of him by thinking that he voted in favor of this. B, it makes me wonder what his reaction was to learning that the JSA did this without him. Obviously, he was on some sort of bereavement leave because it was immediately following the funeral of his daughter. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But... It was also motivated in part by the death of his daughter.
2: Yeah. So I wonder if he carries some guilt with him because of that.
0: Yeah. Because he clearly would have been a no vote. Mm hmm. And he still would have been outvoted.
2: Oh, because then they wouldn't have had Pat in there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yep. Really curious about all of that. Mm hmm. And I, I don't think we really discussed this, but I do love the idea that. The JSA was undone completely by having taken a life.
2: Yeah, I think we kind of take it for granted because right now in the MCU, I mean, it's common that they kill people.
0: In the MCU, in DC as well, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, on the flash, they don't kill people, but they lock them in a little cell with no toilet. I don't know how they feed people in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. The pipeline seems like a real, real dark way to punish somebody.
2: Yep, I agree.
0: I I really want an episode just exploring that. But that's neither here nor there. The issue is deaths and superhero properties. You know, because when superheroes first came along, people got all mad about superheroes. You know, Batman was killing people left and right in the early, early days. Superman's throwing people out of windows. They rose from a, a pulp sensibility where death and murder was was the norm. But then when the Comics Code Authority came around, then they had to like start being really by the books and they couldn't kill anybody. And then it became less of a Comics Code thing and more of like, a morally superior position to take. So Superman didn't kill anybody. I remember in the eighties, the late eighties, Superman did kill somebody in the comics and he Mm -hmm. felt so bad about it. He left the galaxy. He just flew off into space. And I, I love that when you have someone that's so opposed to killing that then you can put them in a position where they are forced to and then deal with the fallout from that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been sorely missing in both the MCU and the Arrowverse because Oliver Queen was killing people for three seasons, just Mm -hmm. willy nilly every episode. Yeah. And his big, you know, come to God moment wasn't, oh, my God, I really need to atone for this. It was like, well, maybe I should stop doing this. Mm -hmm. So I love getting back to this. This core thing where death is something that is a bridge too far like you can't kill mm-hmm. and exploring it with what happened with brainwave and Yolanda and Mike accidentally killing icicle and then taking it all the way back to the JSA like this it's they're just it's so good it is I know I I, I know I get rolling on like these points and then I just peter out with it's so good all the time, <laughs> I, I acknowledge, I just don't know how to verbalize any better how amazing this is and that, 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 that the writers do such a great job. They really do. We also do find out, as Beth continues her conversation, the shade saved Dr. McNider. Yeah. At least he thinks so. He, he says it fa- like a matter of fact at first. But then he walks it back a little bit and says he thinks that's what he was trying to do.
2: Yeah, I guess he's had a lot of time there in the Shadowland to think about what actually happened. So I am very curious. I'm, I'm predicting that we're going to get Dr. McKnighter back, that they're going to bring him back from the Shadowlands. And then hopefully we can get the full story from him about what happened. Because right now, if the Shade tells me what happens, I'm not going to believe him.
0: Also, how disappointing would it be, honestly if they establish that Dr. McKnighter is still alive Mm -hmm. and is somewhere. And then they just go, Oh yeah. He's he's just stuck there forever. Yeah. We've just decided to replace the, this seemed easier than coming up with a new AI. (laughs) Ooh. Also Mike, Mike says he's going to go out and get reinforcements. Yeah. So he doesn't actually
2: tell Beth or Barbara that does he? I think he tells buddy. So Beth is doing a terrible job of protecting him if he's just leaving through the front door on her
0: watch. That's a good point. Like she was distracted.
2: She was. But then, you know, for the next however many hours that
0: he was out of the house. Yeah, I don't think she ever notices.
2: Nope. Maybe he was right not to be impressed by her being there to
0: protect him. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) It would be funny, though, if if the goggles just like put up a little outline of Mike say, like, Mike's not here. (laughs) No Mike. Yeah. But she is
2: distracted because now Dr. McNighter is giving the history on the
0: shade. And he unlocks the Eclipso files as well. Yeah. So that's what keeps her busy so that she doesn't notice Mike is gone.
2: So when it pops up, like, all the information about the shade, born London, 1808, home Opal City, associates, the ISA... Simon Culp, Captain X, and Ted Knight. Ted Knight was the original Starman, right? Yes. So that's interesting that there's that connection.
0: This is not the first mention of Ted Knight. Mm -hmm. In season one, Pat did mention that Ted Knight created the Cosmic Staff. Right. I'm really curious to see if Ted Knight is a Golden Age Starman. If he was Starman before Sylvester became Starman, as should be the case Mm -hmm. Jeff on this podcast teased that we would see some stuff with Jack Knight. All right. So we know those are both people that exist in this world. We know Ted created the cosmic staff and with him being from Opal City. um, I, I just I'm really waiting to see if the shade mentions any of that connection.
2: Yeah, I'm hoping so too.
0: I love that uh, we have an on-screen mention of Opal City as Mm -hmm. being a place. Because that is where, for those of you who do not know, James Robinson's 90s Starman took place. It is the home of Ted Knight and his son David Knight, R.I.P., and his son Jack Knight, and also The Shade. Okay. Oh, and then the history of The Shade, how he got his powers. Yes. Did you have anything to say about that that we didn't cover with Jonathan Cake?
2: Nope, I, th- I think we kind of covered everything there. And then that's followed by his, again, we already talked with him about um, his scene with Barbara, calling
0: her Emily. Uh, and Dr. McKnighter unlocks the Eclipso files, uh, which oh, we didn't address that um, she's more, she's able to speak to Dr. McNider more clearly and interruption free because she's close to the shade. Mm hmm. We know the shade has a connection to the Shadowlands, of course, but I kind of wonder if it wasn't the fact that he's cut open with the Shadowlands sort of leaking out of him. Oh, yeah. Or whatever it is, if like his wounds are letting the signal through.
2: I bet you're right. Yeah, I think so.
0: Because She's not still talking to. Let's just call him Chuck, please. Mm-hmm. Dr. McNiter is such a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> uh, She's not still talking to Chuck after he is healed. So we don't know what it is, but I I don't know. For some reason, I just pictured his wounds letting the signal through, which is weird.
2: Yeah, I think it does make sense, though. That's going to be my headcanon for
0: it. Dude, your Wi-Fi so good. Yeah, it's because I'm bleeding.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was shocked by how many files there were on Eclipso. And Beth was probably excited, but then also like, oh, no this is a lot that only i can go through
0: and that's why she didn't notice mike left which was a thing i didn't even notice like i didn't think anything of mike leaving without her knowing
2: there's something about mike that i really like mike as a character and i think that he does like such a great job as that role and as a mom you're keeping your eye on him it's true I mean, Courtney's not risking her life. You know, that's fine. She has a staff, but Mike, he needs protection. He he needs Beth.
0: For some reason, I find it funnier that he tells Buddy what he's doing than I mm-hmm. do when Courtney talks to the staff. Yeah. That that just seems more normal to me than telling a dog, like, I'm going, I'm going to get reinforcements. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. And then we are back in Civic City at Pat's Garage. And he is kind of just looking around in disbelief that it's been 10 years since he's been there and telling Courtney about how it was a workspace for him and Starman.
0: Let's not forget that his car lifted up into the space. Mm -hmm. And I wrote accidentally the rocket racer lifts into the JSA garage. (laughs) And I don't believe that Pat is still driving the rocket racer around. Or if he is, he's probably taken the rocket parts out and put him into Stripe.
2: I don't know. It would not surprise me if Pat had an undercover supercar that he was driving around for just you don't know when you might need it. That's true.
0: It would be great if we went like three or four seasons and then suddenly Pat's like, well, I could just do this. Uh (laughs) And then Mike would be like, "What? yes, could do that this whole time. Yeah, (laughs) I could see that exact scene happening.
2: (laughs) Courtney's looking at the newspapers on the wall. Did you design these newspapers?
0: Yes, I did. <clears throat> I didn't write these down, so I'm going from memory. There is uh, Green Arrow and Speedy Stop the Spider. And I'll, I'll post these to the Instagram and Twitter so you can get a better look at them. Um, but I did. I, I had to use photos of the Seven Soldiers of Victory photo shoot from season one. Mm-hmm. You know, we had like dozens of photos of the individual guys and of the whole group. And so for all these newspaper images, I had to, like, use different photos from that same shoot of these characters. So for those guys, I've got them, like, standing there as if they're fishermen posing with a, a big fish they've caught. And I've got some random dude as the spider. And he's all wrapped up in rope, hanging from his feet. Perfect. You know, like a shark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, One of them is the vigilante or uh, yeah, the vigilante retires. And that is not the awesome vigilante that was just revealed for um, the Peacemaker series. But this is the old school cowboy vigilante from the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Then there is the Shining Knight stops. uh, Who was it? I don't remember. Sorry. Um, That's fine. But it was a deep cut uh JSA villain. Um and then there was one from like when the Seven Soldiers of Victory first came around. It was like who mm-hmm. who are the Seven Soldiers of Victory? And there are a couple others in there that you don't really see. Um, I believe there's one about um the star-spangled kid becoming Starman. Mhm. Um I did a, a whole bunch and uh I ended up being up late into the night making these these newspaper covers um, and sending them off to the production designer who then sent them off to Jeff and James for notes and approvals and then I would make changes and back and forth until the wee hours. Jeff was very happy with them. Good. Jeff said, I'm making the director shoot a close-up of all of them.
2: That's awesome. (laughs) Nice job.
0: And I I knew the close-ups of all of them would not end up being used. Mm Mm-hmm but I, I really appreciated that he he uh, loved them that much and that he gave me direct feedback like that because that does not happen. Mm-hmm. And it takes a special leader like Jeff Johns to make the peons like me feel like more than peons. Well, that's really great. Uh, and
2: then they learn in the scene that Jenny's been staying there. Um, she Her bags are by the couch and they go through some of her papers and there's something about the Helix Institute.
0: Oh, I also want to point out that, um, Pat says every JSA member has their own like special space in the HQ.
2: Yeah. I'm curious what all the others have.
0: And him and Sylvester's is the garage. Yeah. I mean, we know Ted Grant has got to have like a, a gym with a heavy bag and a speed Mm -hmm. bag and stuff, you know? Oh yeah. But yeah, I, I love that that detail, and I hope we see a lot more rooms in the future.
2: Yeah, I hope so, too.
0: So, did you uh, pick up the Helix Institute as a, an Easter egg? So, it sounded familiar, and I wasn't sure why. Helix is a group that fought the, uh, the group Infinity Incorporated. Oh, okay. Which is the group in the comics that Rick and Yolanda and Beth belonged to. They were mm-hmm. all children of the JSA, uh, along with some others. Um, Fury, who was the daughter of the Earth to Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor. Silver Scarab, who was the son of the Hawks uh, and several others throughout the years. Also Obsidian and Jade, of course.
2: Jenny and Todd, right?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a group that they fought called Helix not the helix institute they're going a different direction with it here but uh the group was called helix um and it was basically a bunch of genetically altered children oh this doctor named dr love created them all okay and the woman at this institute her name is nurse love Mm -hmm. at the end of the episode jumping ahead a little bit she calls mr bones yeah who was another member of Helix. He was a bad guy with invisible skin. So you can see his bones. And he also had a cyanide touch.
2: Okay. I was going to say, just seeing your bones, that's not really a great power.
0: No, that's not a great power. No. I mean, unless you want a job working at a haunted house. Yeah. But he could also kill you with a touch. So there's, there's that.
2: Yeah. That one, that one's pretty important. I love Mike over at the pit stop messing around in stripe and not doing great and his line I thought robotics would be a lot more like Legos I love that everyone in my house is super into Legos right now so I uh, very much related to that
0: so let's really think this through Mike says buddy I'll be back with reinforcements so in Mike's head he was like I'm gonna go down there and I'm just gonna fix the robot and then I'll just fly it back to the house and we'll be set I think he literally thought that that's his plan. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to fix the robot all of a sudden of an afternoon Mm -hmm. and fly it with no lessons back to the house. Yeah, that's Mike in a nutshell, man. And it's shocking that that didn't work out. But he hears on the radio some reports of pink lightning.
2: Yeah, all around town. Before we get to uh, figure out what's going on there, Pat and Courtney uh, show up at the Helix Institute. And we get another moment of Courtney being like, you know, what is this place? Pat says he doesn't know. And she's like, you know, I never know when you're lying to me or I never know when you're not telling me something. And he does reveal a little bit more, but it is basically he doesn't know what it is. It's just what he read in
0: Jenny's papers. Poor guy like has put himself in a position where now he's not allowed to not know things Mm -hmm. for fear of upsetting Courtney.
2: And they're in at the front desk and... This place is like a real creepy
0: place too. It's like, like it's not of this time. It seems almost like an asylum. It does. Like uh, one floor over the cuckoo's nest. Mm-hmm. It's got that kind of vibe. It's a realistic creepy, not a, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street creepy.
2: hmm And so they find out that Jenny actually is currently there, but Todd is not. And I really love how Courtney goes in and, you know, the, she's like, you know, Courtney, Pat, what are you doing here? And, Courtney tells her, like, we need your help. And then they kind of shift over and, you know, make sure that she's okay. And I like how that was done.
0: Yeah. So we find that um, for whatever reason, after being arrested for shoplifting, Todd ended up at this place. They're clearly setting something up here with the phone call at the end where she calls Mr. Bones, Mm -hmm. who, man, I hope has invisible skin. I hope they're not just using the name. I, Yeah. uh, I hope it's full on Mr. Bones. We also learned that the news stories that have led them here of an abandoned orphanage being burnt down and this federal building being burnt down, both with green fire, are the result of her looking for Todd and getting emotionally overwhelmed so that she couldn't control her ring. Mm -hmm. And now she's apologizing for having forgotten what Pat taught her about controlling those emotions
2: and she has a line of you do anything to protect your family. You just do. And you have a quick shot of Courtney, like looking at Pat, but they don't meet eyes again. That just reinforces how much she wants them to be a family and wants things to be different.
0: So then as they're leaving nurse love calls, Mr. Bones and let's slip to us that Todd is apparently still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's the implication when she says, I told them he wasn't here anymore.
2: Yeah and he is letting Mr. Bones know that Todd has a sister.
0: Now let's also note that um, Todd had a map of Milwaukee Wisconsin in -hmm. his room and the same photo of he and Jenny that she has. So then we go over to Mike who's bicycling around town and is seeing some signs of the thunderbolt. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like Jakeem and Mike must be pretty good friends because they seem to have the same sorts of effects on the world while wielding the thunderbolt. Yeah.
2: What do you think Jackim's wish actually was?
0: He probably wished for some candy.
2: And then he got all that,
0: <laughs> you know, it's, uh,
2: that's kind of what I was thinking. Like, Oh, I wish I had a gingerbread house. And then boom,
0: who can say the thunderbolt is so whacked out of his mind. Apparently the way he yeah. interprets things. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have wished that his life was like a storybook or a fairy tale. And boom, gingerbread house. Yeah. He could be in there getting eaten by a witch right now.
2: <laughs> really excited. I'm hoping um, this is a setup to get more of uh, Jackie and the Thunderbolt next episode, I hope. Because I think they're going to need to call in some reinforcements.
0: It would be a shame to set it up and not pay it off.
2: So maybe Mike left to get reinforcements and he actually is recruiting a reinforcement unintentionally. Yeah. His original plan of flying the robot back didn't work out.
0: It clearly did not. So Jenny reforges the diamond. Re I don't want to say refuses because it's confusing. Uh-huh. <laughs> but she puts the diamond back together with her ring just as Beth learns the truth about this moment that it does not entrap eclipso but summons him
2: yeah and the shade gets his creepy black eyes going on so he
0: has essentially just sacrificed courtney to save his own life Mm -hmm. what a jerk oh yeah can i just say jenny does a pretty good job against eclipso she really does and eclipso like looks annoyed like
2: that he actually has to take the time to get someone away from him like he's just so used to being able to blow right through everyone
0: but unfortunately, to go back to your thing about Jakeem, hopefully showing up next episode, I can tell you, you're not going to get that because obviously now Courtney is dead and the show is over. Well, exactly. It's the end of the podcast, I guess. We're all done here. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good run. <laughs> but, you know, Pat seems to think she's dead.
2: And I really liked how Pat, as soon as Eclipso's there, he grabs a wrench and then goes after him. Like, what are you going to do, Pat? It was a very sweet gesture, but.
0: You gotta know, you're not taking down Eclipso with a wrench. Actually, I was so focused on what happened to Courtney. I don't know that I noticed what happened to Eclipso. I think he kind of disappeared off. He just left?
2: Yeah. I wonder if he can just shadow out of there like the shade
0: can. Doesn't he have to scurry like in episode six?
2: Well, yeah, that's what I was wondering.
0: I scurry! Ha!
2: Would he have to go scurry and wait for the elevator and then go out that way? Or maybe now that the connection to the Shadowlands is open he is able to travel more freely.
0: I mean, we just ended right there. He could still be standing there and he's just going to go rip Pat's spine out at the top of the next episode. He better not. (laughs) Well, that's the episode. Courtney's dead.
2: I was not expecting that. I
0: mean, it's just Beth and Pat
2: left and now Jenny. Like, what are they going to do?
0: Well, they're going to find Jakeem. Uh, We've already established the Thunderbolt can't wish people back to life.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. I think we're going to see Barbara suit up. Oh, yeah. Yes. That is a thing I believe. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to see it, though. Anyway. Hey, guys. Head over to FandomLimb.com to find all our Fandom Limb podcasts. Uh, There are a bunch. Uh, In fact, we got somebody new coming on that I just signed up today.
2: Ooh, exciting.
0: Yes, a new podcast called I Watched This as an Adult. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) The newest member of the Fandom Limb Media Podcast family. So head over to FandomLimb.com. I have another podcast over there. Sarah has another podcast over there. They are Table Reads and What's New Nancy Drew, respectively. And there are another dozen on top of those uh, that you should check out because there's a lot of fun stuff and informative stuff that you will for sure, love, and you know they're podcasts. They're free. You don't have to pay for those. Yeah, you do have to pay for T-shirts at merch.stargirlaftershow.com, though. But it's worth it. It's so worth it. I I ordered another two uh, the other day. Nice. I don't know if you guys saw. We have uh, an hourglass shirt that makes it look like you're wearing the Hourman hourglass. No one has bought one yet. I don't know why. It's pretty fantastic. It's one of the ones I just bought for myself, even though I have an hourglass I can wear. (laughs) Um, But I love it. uh, And I think you will, too. I will. I do have to say this about our merch store. The most popular shirt on the merch store is the logo for this podcast. And I cannot tell you guys how good that makes me feel. You make me feel so loved. And I appreciate every single one of you.
2: And please, if you have anything to say, um, any questions or just want to reach out, please do so on our socials. We love to hear from
0: people. Absolutely. Uh, On Twitter and Instagram, we are at StargirlPod. Speaking of Twitter, don't forget, hashtag StargirlChosenFamily. Get yourself a Polaroid. And that's it. So we will see you next week for the first... Courtney is dead episode of star girl. Oh, I wonder how many we're not going to have her. Oh, uh, spoiler alert. The show is now going to be called star Mike. (laughs) (laughs) I would love that star Mike. Did the staff go with her or is the staff still out there? Uh, the staff did not go with her. So star Mike could happen. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure it will (laughs) stay tuned next week for the first episode of star Mike after show. (laughs) <laughs> Until then, have a super great day.
1: Stargirl After Show is a production of fandom
3: Lim Media.! Oh.